Hi, welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. The second reading for this Sunday's Masses on the 21st Sunday in Ordinary Time comes from Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. St. Paul, so how do you feel about the job that God is doing running the world right now? Let's talk about that, why it is that we think like that sometimes, um, but what the true source and consolation of our faith is. Hold on. When did authority become such a dirty word? You know what I mean by that. There just seems to be this built-in reaction in each of us uh, of the rebel. Uh, just don't trust authority. Uh, who's in charge of the world? Do you believe God really has a plan? Uh, do you think that it's just the United States of America and its allies against everybody? Uh, how is it that you think about how the world progresses or seemingly doesn't uh, appear to progress. G.K. Chesterton, the famous English Catholic and writer, had a saying, he said there's two kinds of people. There are people who know they have a dogma and there are people who have a dogma but don't know it. And so the people who are so against authority, if they had to explain why it is they should run the world, why they know better than, you know, whoever the, the leaders in the world or the church are. How would they explain it? That's something to think about. And here's what I would ask you to be attuned to. Um, ideology. Ideology has a long history on our planet. It actually goes back to the time of the French Revolution, and there was a philosopher named de Tracy there, and he thought ideology was the science of, of studying politics and society. So we think of it as sociology and, and uh, political theory. Uh, which are still come to us in our, our universities, but are really rooted in the Enlightenment understanding that you can actually study human behavior and come up with uh, these ways of understanding that are uh, help you to predict and control and direct. So how's that working for us? About a hundred years later, not quite, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels wrote a book and what they suggested, De Tracy had it upside down. It's not that human beings study uh, human reality in the world and come up with a, uh, uh, an understanding that's political philosophy or sociology. He says that the reality is, according to Marx, is that our attempts to understand reality always rooted in and formed in class consciousness. Um, might as well say birth order, uh, the, the world, the country that we're born into. Because the tendency in all human beings, according to Karl Marx, is to justify the world that they live in according to the rules that they understand. 
There's something important uh, in that, but it was later qualified by uh, other uh, socialist and communist thinkers, a man named uh, Gracian, I think his name was, or Gracium with an M. Uh, he said that ultimately uh, all attempts at political philosophy are always about power. Where Marx would say that uh, the material dialectic, the reality like evolution in human behavior, actually forms how we think and directs us. So we're not really responsible for our own thoughts. Uh, it's like Carl Jung's archetype. Uh, these kinds of um, underlying historical and material forces uh, form us. Gracian says, if you get it down to its uh, basics, it's just about power, uh, that people have power trying to justify power, and so they come up with a, the uh, a theory that justifies power. Where this took on big legs was in the wake of the Second World War. I don't know if you're the generation to remember that one of the reasons that the West, Western Europe, blamed the Germans uh, for Nazism was the idea that Germany was dominated by the Prussians, was a very authoritarian society, and people got used to uh, just doing what they were told. So if they were told, apparently, to go and live a free life or you love your neighbor, they would do that. Uh, if they were told uh, that they were supposed to hate and persecute Jews and other people, they would do that. But the, the idea is that they didn't think for themselves. And now what we're all called to do is to think for ourselves. Uh, that's called the Frankfurt School. And it comes to us uh, most recently in critical race theory which proposes that everything that uh, is proposed by our society is really just an act of power, and it needs to be evaluated. Of course, critical race theory is therefore just an act of power, uh, no more rooted in truth than any of the democratic liberalism according to its uh, ideas of Jefferson or Adams or any of those has-beens. Um, Hannah Arendt called it, uh, which is like a third idea about ideology. If de Tracy thought it was the study of sociology and politics, Marx thought that it was the uh, product of, uh, of class consciousness and social relationships that were simply the echo of power relationships. Hannah Arendt said that the key, she was a survivor of the Nazis. She'd actually been apparently a, a lover of Martin Heidegger, who was a prominent Nazi philosopher. But she kind of turned on it all, and she said what she thought the ideology was, was that it was um, an attempt to understand everything about humanity according to a theory proposed by whoever the ideologue is. And that the tendency was, when you proposed a theory, whether it was uh, progressivism or leftism or conservatism or Nazism or socialism or communism or just put in whatever the ism is, that the tendency of the ideology was that it understood everything in this world term. It would deliver, if you understood it on its own terms, that it proposed to tell you how it is that you could make your way through the world and care for yourself on your own terms, and as a result, disregarded any evidence that didn't agree with the idea. Because ideology, at least the understanding of the word, is the study of ideas. 
So there's three different ideas about ideas, that it's something you can discover truth with in the world that you live in, or it's something that the world gives you because you're born in Tucson, Arizona in 1956. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower is the president, and you're raised a Catholic, and this will decide completely how you think, um, which obviously isn't so, according to all the kids who were brought up with me uh, and had the same or similar backgrounds. Or Hannah Arendt, which uh, really isn't so much an idea about ideas, but it's the problem of ideas that when you have a way of understanding everything, then you disregard any contrary evidence. And so I think I've uh, talked before about right, religion is not an ideology. Um, the Catholic faith, the rewards for the Catholic faith are not in this world. Jesus is crucified. We revere martyrs. Um, unless you think being horribly tortured to death in Nazi death camps like Father Colby, uh, St. Maximilian Colby, that that's his earthly reward that he starved to death and then uh, apparently uh, shot uh, to put him out of his misery or just to free the cell up for the next group of people to be tortured. Um, Colby didn't die because he thought standing up for that man in the death camp was going to make him rich or happy or anything else. The whole idea of his celibate Franciscan life was that fulfillment is not in this world. So, boy, is that an ideology? Uh, and the answer is, is uh, no, because no matter what happens in this world, what all the disappointments you have, uh, it just says every life is an unfinished symphony. God has something more for us. And so when Jesus talks about authority that is not of this world, which is what the readings are about this Sunday, we ought to pay attention so we understand the unique claim to authority that the Catholic Church makes, especially in the Sea of Peter. So let's talk about the first reading um, uh, in, for this 21st Sunday and the Gospel. In the last segment, I mentioned the great Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt, and she wrote a book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, because it's still with us today. Obviously, the Russian state is a totalitarian state, as are the Chinese. And she was very interested how it is that great nations like Russia and China can just give all this authority to this small group of people. And what she talks about is ideology. And here's what she says in uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism. An ideology is quite literally what its name indicates. It's the logic of an idea. Its thought movement does not spring from experience, but is self-generated. And it transforms the one and only point that is taken and accepted from experience, reality, into an axiomatic premise. Once it's established its premise, its point of departure, experience no longer interferes with ideological thinking, nor can it be taught by reality. So once you get an idea, an idea fix, as the French would say, an obsession, you say Marxism is the way to understand everything, progressivism is the way to understand everything, conservatism is the way to understand anything. It becomes an ideology when you refuse to listen or observe reality in sometimes things that simply do not fit into your ideology. Um, 
And so there, everybody's got an ideology. And it's like G.K. Chesterton said, you either recognize that you have it or you don't. But in the gospel, uh, it's very much about authority and what it is that saves our Catholic faith from being merely another ideology. The first reading is from Isaiah 22, and it's about the prime minister of David's kingdom. You know, if you think about how hierarchy is organized, you know, a king never directly controls everything in the kingdom. They always work through bureaucracy. And so we have, I mean, our country, one of the things, reasons the president is important, but not all important, is our country is really run by a vast, uh, a vast bureaucracy. The Roman Empire was run by a vast bureaucracy. When Gibbons wrote his history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, what he said was the reason the Roman Empire could survive so many disastrous emperors is that it had a well-run uh, bureaucracy. Corruption did not extend down uh, to the lowest levels in the Roman Empire necessarily. So David's kingdom ran the same way. And so in Isaiah 22, it's talking about making Shebna, who's a man who's going to be basically the Camberlego, the Baith, the uh, prime minister, the guy that's the chief administrator under King David. He's the guy that runs all the levers of power. So he has an office. And however, Shebna is, uh, when he dies, he's replaced by another administrator, Eliakim, because this is the way the Davidic kingdom runs. It's a series of administrators under the king. And so according to Isaiah 22, what are the characteristics of the office? He's a father to the kingdom, just like the king is a father to the kingdom. He's given the keys of the kingdom so he can open and shut doors. That's what makes him like a Camerlengo, which is like the Pope's chief butler, the guy that opens and closes the door and makes sure uh, that the house is safe. And he has the authority to make binding decisions. The king may make overall decisions, but the day-to-day -day stuff is, is left to the Camerlengo, to the Baith to the Eliakims and Shebnas of this world. And so when we talk about the Holy Father, um, Jesus uses the language of Isaiah 22 about the keys of the kingdom and shutting and opening uh, when he uh, talks to St. Peter. Uh, and so in the reading from the gospel for this week uh, in Matthew, it goes like this. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so doesn't that sound like Isaiah 22 about the keys of the kingdom opening and shutting? And it's how the Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, Jesus, thinks of the role of Peter. 
that he kind of is the person, he is the person uh, that basically uh, makes uh, the day-to-day uh, -day decisions in the church. Overall direction is the king. And so um, how does this story unfold? First, there's confusion. Jesus says, uh, who do men say the Son of Man is? And the guys all look at each other because, you know, he's Elijah, he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He's one of the prophets. But Simon Peter, the rock, says, no, you're the Christ, the Christos, the son of the living God, because his name is Simon. Jesus gives him the name of Peter, which is Petros or Petros rock. And it's the translation of an Aramaic word. It's a Greek word, a translation of an Aramaic word, kephas, which means rock. So it's basically that he's rock. Um, and so uh, what he's responding to in Peter is that Peter has understood who he is, but not through flesh and blood. That is, not just through sensory experience, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can smell, what you can touch, what you can taste. That it is a revelation to him, an insight to him that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so, because that revelation is something Peter will safeguard, he becomes the foundation of the church. You are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church in the gates of the netherworld. Um, that is, the underworld, uh, the hellish world, will not prevail against it, um, where people are buried into the netherworld. Uh, and so it's also about the idea that the church will prevail, if not in this world, it'll prevail over death, the netherworld why the church is not an ideology. Uh, we have bishops, we have popes that have uh, ideas about how countries should get along, but that is not what Peter is talk what Jesus is talking about to Peter. You know, there's different kinds of authority in the church. The Holy Father is infallible when he pronounces, based on the see of Peter, uh, and after consultation with the bishops, what Catholic faith is and what Catholic morals are. Um, that is what infallibility is. He's owed respect, and uh, really there's two levels of it, but I don't want to get into it in this podcast. Um, the kind of respect that he's owed when he makes a statement that's not infallible. So he talks about uh, climate change. I mean, obviously he's a guy who cares, and he widely consults, and he believes he understands the truth, and it should be uh, revealed or received uh, with respect. Uh, are all Catholics respectful of the Pope? Well, mostly no, because they, uh, well, I shouldn't say mostly no, that's probably not true. Um, but the ones that you can tell are the ideologues that tell you how much they love the Pope, except when he doesn't, when they don't agree with him, in which case he's the spawn of Satan or something. God only knows, uh, because people are really hard on this particular Pope. Um, but you know, John Paul and Benedict and Paul VI especially, had huge opposition. Paul VI almost caused a schism with Humanae Vitae. I mean, he had major intellectuals write public statements about why he didn't know what he was talking about. Oh, but he did know what he was talking about. Sex is not a simple thing, and we shouldn't take it for granted. So what I'd say is when you're fighting with Pope Francis, think of the track record of Paul VI, John Paul XXIII, and Benedict XVI. Um, don't, uh, don't disrespect the Pope. Listen thoughtfully. If you have trouble with it, disagree, okay, respectfully. 
and then understand what it is he's saying. And so where all does this come from? Well, Jesus is uh, obviously looking back to Isaiah 22 um, about um, opening and shutting. And at the heart of it is Peter's teaching authority, which I've talked about, which really there's an infallible part of it, then there's a part of religious obedience and then religious respect. Uh, in all cases, we Catholics should uh, listen carefully to the Holy Father. He is not our enemy. He means us well. And for those who say there's a vacancy or some of the nonsense that goes with the so-called Catholics, um, don't bet against the Sea of Rome. Uh, you're going to lose. And the, uh, the line of losers goes back 2,000 years. So let history be your guide. Um, you know, St. Irenaeus in his, in his book, uh, Against the Heresies, is one of the first people that really puts together the heart of uh, the Catholic e ethos. And he bases it on scripture, tradition, and authority. Um, and so in, and this is an easy one to remember, Against the Heresies, book three, um, chapter three, verse three, I think is the way that you would cite it. At least that's how I remember it. Here's what he says. Uh, because he's fighting with the Gnostics, all of whom, like some of our very critical Catholics, um, disagree with the Pope. And they have their own version of what Catholicism should be, which they're very sincere about, but obviously are sincerely wrong. And so what Irenaeus points out is the teaching authority and the line of popes that go right back to St. Peter. So this is the root of our understanding of the apostolic authority. And it's written about the middle of the second century. So it's maybe a generation or two after the death of St. John. The very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, as also the faith preached to men, come down to our time by means of the succession of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with his church on account of its preeminent authority, that is, the faithful everywhere. The blessed apostles then have founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus the office of the episcopate. To him succeeded Anacletus, and after him in third place from the apostles Clement, who by the way wrote to the Corinthians. To this Clement there succeeded Evaristus. Alexander followed Evaristus, then six from the apostles. Sixtus was appointed after him. Telephorus, who was gloriously martyred, then Hygienus, and after him, Pius, and after him, Anicetus. Soter having succeeded Anicetus, Eleutherius does now, in the twelfth place from the apostles, hold the inheritance of the episcopate. In this order, and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is the most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. So I guess the real side is Irenaeus against the heresies, book three, um, chapter three, verses two to three. Uh, that's the citation I'm reading from. And so, wow, this understanding of the authority of Peter coming down to the present is completely explained by Irenaeus. So how could you disagree with it? Well, because you decide 
that the real authority is scripture and that scripture will tell us what to believe and we just uh, understand uh, the gospel reading uh, differently than uh, Catholics understand it. This is the mark of the Reformation and the disunity of Christianity that's followed. And so why do we listen to St. Irenaeus? Because our religious faith goes back to the succession of the successors of Peter and all the other successors to the apostles that we call bishops. And so why isn't this just an ideology? Because we've had some stinker popes, some stinker bishops, some real stinker priests, and some stinker Catholic lay people. Um, I always like to point out why have we lasted 2,000 years. I mean, you, I know you've heard all of this, but it is pretty amazing. So why don't we bring this episode of Oral Valley Catholic to an end by reflecting on church authority and why it is perhaps the necessary antidote to the ideologies that rip our world apart. I began this episode of Oral Valley Catholic by reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11. You know, it's about, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Uh, Paul is a Pharisee and he's quoting from the Old Testament. Um, God's wisdom is Jesus. Uh, and here's how the Old Testament talks about God's wisdom. And this is from Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has instructed him? That's Isaiah 40. Uh, and so it's Isaiah looking at the deterioration of the Israel he lived in and uh, calling it the wisdom of God. Not that he had a better plan or if the king had better advisors or a better political philosophy. That was not how Isaiah looked at it. He saw a bigger hand in all of it. The problem of ideology fundamentally is the idea that we've all inherited that we can perfect the world and perfect human beings. Um, no is the answer to that. The problem of all ideology and just think of Whatever it is that you will admit to as your ideology, conservative, liberal, communist, whatever, and ask yourself what role human sin plays in, it, in any of it. Um, human sin and the understanding of the, of the fallibility of the human being is a Christian insight based on the Jewish, uh, the Jewish faith and human experience. It's what G.K. Chesterton would say, the one dogma of the church for which there is plenty of evidence. But, you know, how do the various uh, ideologies, political philosophies that you understand account for it? I would bet you would think that some, maybe not perfectly, but better than others. So in your choices of thinking about how you think about the world and the society that you live in and the politics that you live in, you ought to just make your best choice for how it is that you think you can keep the world from getting worse than it already is. That's how St. Augustine talks about the duty of the, of the Catholic. Uh, he doesn't think that the world's perfectible. He wrote the, the city of God, and it's this the city of earth, uh, the city of man, and the city of God, neck and neck throughout all of history in that book. And so we Catholics are rooted in the city of God. 
which is not of this world. Even in the book of Revelation, it says it comes down from heaven. It's not something we put together and offer up. And so God's wisdom made the world the way it is that it may work out according to God's plan for us. Um, and I just don't think there's any real human ideology, even the ones I would uh, prefer, that really accounts adequately for that because ideologies are really just restricted to this world. When we make our Catholic faith an ideology by trying to bring it to its conclusion in this world, we simply betray the faith because it is not a, an ideology that can be, uh, can be completed in this world, but only in the one to come. But we can avoid the problems that Hannah Arendt pointed out about totalitarianism and ideologies in general. And that is how we think about evidence that's contrary to how we think the world should be. How do you account for it? Well, one of the things that the church is uh, doing, as you probably heard, is the synod on synodality. My opinion is, is that the reason we're doing this synod now is that the Holy Father and the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople do have hopes for the reunification of the Eastern and Western churches, and the Eastern churches run based on synodality. We've had synods in the Latin church uh, since the beginning, but they haven't been that prominent. There's been plenty of synods, which is mostly the bishops um, advising the Pope, who then comes out maybe with an apostolic exhortation after the synod is over. But this synod is different. It's the first time that Catholic lay people have been invited to uh, take its place with the bishops in uh, this ancient form of church governance and to offer their advice to the Holy Father. Um, it's Pope Francis's concern that the church not surrender its authority, but it be authority that listens. And so it's not always just taking ideas off the shelf and keep putting together 13th century propositions as if they came forward from the mouth of Jesus. And so that the Holy Father and the church is exploring this way together, uh, we should all be open to the fact that there are some very distrustful uh, Catholic voices out, of, out there. Um, well, I think they're just going to be disappointed. I just leave you with St. Therese of Lisieux. You and I are just small players in the world. We're not, uh, we're not running anything really outside of our own little narrow sphere. So the little way is just understanding your role and always making Christ-centered choices the best you can in your day-to-day -day relationships amongst family and friends. Um, when you lose too much sleep over a national policy about this, that, and the other thing, well, it has its place, but probably not the same level of concern that you should have about the community that you live in and how it is that you can make it a better place through your prayer, your sacrifices, and your participation in community life because we really do depend on each other. Ideology increasingly divides people. Let's not be among that number. Let's be the bridge builders. God bless you, and here's been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic.